This is where Miriam and Aaron got into a little bit of trouble by resisting the man of God, Moses. So Numbers 12, I'll begin reading with verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he married the Ethiopian woman, and they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all of the men which were upon the face of the earth, and the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, and unto Aaron, and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation, and the three came out. And then the Lord appeared to them, and then I'll just read what it says here in verse 10. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and old Miriam became leprous, white as snow. Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, wherein we have sinned. And you can see in verse 13, where Moses cried out to the Lord, Heal her now, O God. Heal her now, O God. So let's have a word of prayer. So, Lord, tonight, as we get into your word, speak to all of us clearly. We are grateful that you are a healer. Father, help us to learn a number of things just about character, about how you want us to live for you, with you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the preceding chapter, the children of Israel had been complaining, murmuring. That's kind of normal for the script with them, and they were unhappy because they didn't like the manna. They wanted more food, different kinds of food. They said, we need some meat. That's really what they wanted. They said they were tired of eating this soft manna, but Moses, because of their complaints, he went to God and he said, look, there's too many people out there. They're wearing me out, and maybe it'd be better for me if you just go ahead and take my life. Too much of a burden. But the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take 70 elders, bring them out here to the tabernacle. The spirit, the presence of God that's on you, I'm going to put that on them. So that's what he did. So 70 people received of the spirit of Moses. <coughs> then later it says in the same chapter, chapter 11, that the Lord caused a wind to blow. And that wind brought in quails from the sea and brought in so many quail that they just surrounded the camp and it took them two days to gather up all the quail. But the scripture says the quail were stacked so high, they were like two cubits high. Now, a cubit would be from my fingertip to about my elbow. So that's a lot of bird. The scripture says while they were eating, Quail and the Lord was answering their petitions for me because the Lord was displeased with their murmuring. So while the flesh of the quail was still in their teeth, God began to judge. Difficult things came to them because of that. It's at this point that we move into chapter 12, and you can see that Miriam and Aaron were speaking against Moses because of his marriage. Now, Miriam and Aaron both were older than Moses. Miriam was a prophet. Aaron was the one who was the high priest by this time. We know that Moses already had a wife. We just don't know what happened to her. From Exodus 2, we know he's got Zipporah that he's married to. And from her, he had two sons. We know that. And we, we understand that he was with her before he began his ministry of deliverance amongst the children of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. However, whether this lady died, or whether Moses in turn made the decision to take a second wife or something like that, that's not stated. So no sense in me spending a whole lot of time just conjecturing about that. But I do want to make something of this issue here with regard to the marriage, because he made a choice to choose to marry someone he wanted. And his brother and his sister weren't happy about it. And 
Sometimes it happens. And if, if there's anything that can produce contention, uh, a marriage can do that. There's no doubt about it. Now, Paul tells us in the New Testament that as Christians, if we marry or remarry, we should do so in the Lord. And there are other occasions in the Bible where people married the wrong people and it turned their heart in another direction. So if you read about Solomon, you'll see he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and it said they turned his heart away from the Lord. 700 wives, 300 concubines. How many of you know that's 999 too many? <laughs> you, better, you, better, you better believe it. And, and we know from 1 Kings 16, 31, that Ahab married Jezebel, and because of that, he provoked God. Now what I'm getting at is that with Solomon, when he married those women, he went after four different gods other than Jehovah. And his heart changed. Now, with, with regard to Moses, there is never an indication that either of these ladies turned his heart away from God. That's important. Very important. Because when and it comes to who we choose to spend our life with, we should choose to spend it with someone who has a covenant with God also. That's very important. Why marry someone who doesn't have a covenant with God only to then spend your time trying to pray for that person's conversion? When, if you already know from the scripture what you should do, then do that. Now, it's, it's been an observation of mine, one that I've, I've kind of observed up close since I was a, a kid, and that is typically if a person is on fire for God, they look for somebody on fire for God. That's usually how, how that operates. If, if, if a person is less so inclined, then they typically end up with somebody who's kind of like that. It's not so important. If, if someone says, well, I don't really care what religion, what belief anybody has, then oftentimes you'll find they end up yoked with someone who doesn't really care what kind of faith or belief that they have. That is to say that, that oftentimes our spouse becomes a mirror of what we are, who we are. You're passionate about the king, you should want somebody passionate about the king. Otherwise, what's the point? With, with regard to Moses and the Ethiopian woman, I don't know if they didn't like her heritage. I don't know if they didn't like her culture. Whatever it was they did not like, they did not be, they were not silent with their dislike. And of course, that's usually how it happens. People are unhappy about something. Then usually they're going to express it because the scripture says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? But you've probably also seen where, particularly out here, where if, if people aren't happy with the marital choice, then a lot of times people don't say much of anything. They don't want to rock the boat, <laughs> they don't want to be the one that's causing any kind of problems at all. And I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've sat down with people that had to hear stories from parents, or grandparents, or siblings, and then after something is falling apart, then they say, well, I never liked her anyway. <laughs> well, why didn't you tell them that in the beginning? Not that it would have changed anything, but you know, you could have expressed yourself. But I understand why people don't do it. They don't want to create a bad memory. They don't want to create a moment that will never be forgotten. And heated words and language sometimes that won't ever be forgotten. So in verse verse number one, they spoke against Moses. And then in verse two, notice what they said to Moses. Are you the only one God ever talks to? I mean, you, you do realize this is Mary. You do realize I'm a prophet. And Aaron is like, I'm a, I'm a priest here. And God does speak to me through the Urim and the Thummim. you familiar with that. The priest had a breastplate. And that breastplate, he had a bunch of stones, represent one representing each tribe. And then he had a little pouch at the bottom of that that had two stones. And those stones in Hebrew mean light and fire. And traditionally, they'll never say this here in the book like this, but traditionally, that priest would take those two stones, go into the presence of God, and he's trying to find out the will of God. And if those stones gold were fired up, then he knew he had the will of God to pursue but if in the presence of God, those stones didn't do anything, 
then he knew he did not have God's will to do it. So we, we've always said no blow, no go. You don't have that, that, that glow from the king, then why, why move forward with that? And, and they, they honestly believed that God was in them just like God was in Moses. And obviously, God was. Because Miriam was a prophetess. She was a lady who was a spokesperson for the king. The anointing of God was on her. You remember after the parting of the Red Sea, she then took a tambourine and led all the ladies out. And they danced and they praised God. And those ladies would not have followed her if she was not respectable. That's why they followed her. Aaron, on the other hand, it just seems to me that he lacks one of the character traits that Moses had. And that's confidence and boldness. Stand up and do what's right. Seems like he's always following somebody. Remember the crowd told him, let's build a golden calf? He said, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> good idea. And, and then, of course, when, when, when Moses came and confronted him about the golden calf and, and how it was made, you remember what he said? He's afraid again. He's afraid of his brother. He said, look, I don't know what happened. These folks brought me some Jewelry and all that stuff. I tossed it in the fire and then I came this thing. <laughs> I mean, he, he just totally skipped over all of the graving that he did, the instruments that he had, and making it. He just said, I don't know what happened. It's like these people put a hex on me or something. I just, I don't remember what happened. But then here, I wonder if he was following his sister because later on, when they're in the presence of God, it's not him, but it's his sister who ends up left. But in either case, Aaron really had a character flaw, and that was he, he was susceptible to just following what the crowd said, or what an influential person said. And, and we shouldn't be like that. If we know something is wrong, then we should just stand for what is right. And, and I'll be honest with you, Paul tells us in the New Testament to do all things without murmuring. But let's, let's be clear, murmuring is never good. Hardly anything good comes out of it. He said, what, what is it to murmur? You know, to, to complain about things you don't have control over. That's really what, what murmur and complain is about in this instance. We are all dissatisfied with certain things. You may not like the taste of something. You may not like the geography of the place, the, the weather of the place. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about things that that you can change, that you refuse to change, but if you just murmur and complain about it. There's no sense in you complaining about all the litter out in your yard if you don't go out in the yard and pick it up. And you have the ability to do it. Well, verse 2 says, hasn't he also spoken by us? And the answer would be yes. But even though God has spoken by these two, Moses still stood in a relationship with God that was different than theirs. I'm not saying he was closer, they were further away. I'm saying by position and status, he had a different role. <clears throat> he did. <clears throat> so with that role, then, he, he's supposed to lead and guide the people, and he has to make decisions that are not left to Aaron and Miriam. It's just not within their sphere of influence. Like you with, with kids, it really doesn't matter what all your neighbors think about how kids ought to be raised. The decisions regarding their life fall at your feet. And if and if anybody were to come to you, uh, you know, murmuring and complaining about the fact you don't let your kids go to the playground as often as all the other kids, they can't spend as much as much time at the pool as everybody else, or they don't get to go to the amusement park or whatever, then you know your your response essentially would be, well, who cares what you think? They're not your kids. They're not your kids. So here we, we understand that Moses was, was a man of God, and they are envious of the power that he has. And envy will drive you to attack people and attack people that have authority that you don't necessarily have. Now, we don't know that they, if they had the power that Moses had, that they would even be as wise as Moses. We already know what kind of a man Moses is. In verse 3, it says he's meek. Now, he wrote the first book, first five book, books of the Bible. That'd be an interesting little verse to insert there about yourself, that you're the meekest <laughs> man on earth. Yeah, I, I, 
How'd you how'd you like that? Somebody wrote that. But but that, that's an interesting thing to write under the inspiration of God. So then what, what does the word meek mean? Of course we know the meek shall inherit the earth. We instantly think of the word humble. Okay? That's, and that's a good word. But in Hebrew as well as Greek, when we think of meek, we're thinking of a character trait that has to do with being trained, disciplined. I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, that when the Greeks trained a horse, their description of that horse, once it was adequately trained, they described it in Greek as meek, which is to say, which is to say that a, a, a Greek, a Roman-trained horse when it went into battle, it didn't turn and flee, even though people were dying all around it, and even though it was being hit. So meek horse was able to be guided and ridden, and it stayed the course. Alexander the Great, when his father, Father Philip the Great, was out there breaking horses one day, they saw that there was one horse that they couldn't seem to get under control. Just a while. And Alexander the Great was just a little kid. Couldn't have been more than 11 or 12 years of age. And he watched. And he quickly saw what the problem was. He told his father's men, if I break this horse, can I have this horse? They said, this horse will kill you. No one is going to be able to do anything with this horse. Well, the men went off to lunch, and when they came back, they found Alexander the Great riding bareback on that horse. Because Alexander the Great realized when they were training that horse, that horse was afraid of its own shadow. So it was skittish. So he turned that horse in the direction to face the sun where it couldn't see its own shadow, and then he was able to put some reins on it, then he was able to ride it. Well, think about it. That horse became the horse he used to ride across the greater part of the Mediterranean and the eastern part of the world and conquer the world. So that horse was so trained that when Alexander the Great, as a man, walked up to that horse, that horse would bow and let him climb up on him and mount. Said he'd kill anybody else that tried to come near him. Tried to kill anybody else that tried to climb up on him. But that horse was me. So when, when we think of someone like that, this is what we're saying to Moses. He's a God-tamed, God-controlled man. You would have to be if you deal with the rebellion of the sons of Korah, and then you walk out there, and then you throw a line in the sand, and then you say, I'm telling you, everybody ought to get away from Korah because their family is in trouble right now. Then earthquake opens up, and Korah and his family, parts of their tribe, went to hell with the clothes on. Whole earth just opened up. Think of what happened after the golden calf when Moses drew a line in the sand and said, everybody on God said, better get over here. But all of you who don't believe in what I'm talking about, you stay right over there. The scripture said, a mass of people came over here and he told them, everybody grab a sword and deal with all of them heathens that's still on the other side. You'd have to be a God's amen to do that. A lot of people wouldn't do that at all. Their hearts would be breaking. Their hearts would be bleeding. Because when you're dealing with family and kin, some people will not make the hard decision. Moses is meek. Now look at verse 4. So God said to Moses, okay, you and Aaron and Miriam, all of you come to the tabernacle. So those three separated themselves from the congregation, came to the tabernacle, and verse 5 said, the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud. Now let's remember the way God guided the children of Israel in the wilderness was they would set up the tent in all the camps, but they always set the, the tent in the center with three tribes on either side. And the cloud of God rested above the tent, and whenever that cloud started drifting off in the distance, then they knew pack up everything and follow the cloud. On this occasion, the cloud that was above the tent descended and came right down to the tabernacle. And verse number five says, the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, stood in the door, and called for these three. How'd you like to hear that voice? I wouldn't even want to be near that voice on that, on that particular occasion. But amazingly, they came 
And the Lord, he began basically to admonish them. He said, if there's a prophet among you, I'll make myself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. So prophet, obviously, according to what God is saying here, is going to have and does have a divine and supernatural ministry of revelation because God speaks to that person. You don't have to be asleep to have a dream. You can be wide awake. Everybody in here has daydreamed before, and it wasn't God, but you daydreamed before. But a person can also go to sleep and have a vision as Abraham had. Joseph had a dream when he was asleep, and so on and so forth. I'm just trying to emphasize that if God wants to communicate with a person who has a prophetic ministry, or even like uh, Miriam, who was a prophetess, then the Lord will make himself known. So that's to say God's not trying to hide himself from people. Throughout Scripture, he's trying to reveal himself. When you start in Genesis chapter 1, the very first word, uh, verse six, uh, first sentence, in the beginning God, and that's, that's the word Elohim. Then as you move further and further through the scripture, then you start running into other words for God. Then we start running into these compound names of God. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Sidkenu. You look up all of those names, each of those names were given in specific scenarios that demonstrate the character of God. So God's not trying to hide himself. He's trying to reveal himself. And, and each time he does that, people learn more and more about the nature and the character of God. And this is why when Jesus finally came as the fullness of God in flesh, God the Son, he's able to say, I only do those things that please my Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. All of these Old Testament titles, you can gather them up and bundle them up and place them all on Jesus, and you'll find somewhere in the gospel where his life and ministry reveals those attributes. So again, if there be a prophet among you, I'll make myself known. But verse 7, he says, my servant Moses isn't so, who is faithful in all his all my house. God considered Israel his house, his people, his chosen generation, his royal priesthood, his chosen folks. And if, if he's faithful in all his house, then what he's saying to Miriam and Aaron is, in contrast to you, Moses is different. Moses has not spent his time running around here complaining and murmuring about you to everybody in the congregation. Now, Moses does go to God with some of his complaints, and I think if you're going to complain, that's who you ought to talk to. Yeah. If, you, if you have a problem with people, you really should pour your heart out to God because God knows your heart, so he knows there, there may not really be any, you know, vitriol, or hostility, or hatred there, but sometimes you just need somebody to complain to. But you go to the wrong person, and people will gather up all your complaints, and if you're not careful, they'll take your complaints and tell people behind your back. And then before you know it, everybody thinks you're a complaint. Like one person told me one time, if you've got anything bad to say about anybody, just go out in the woods somewhere and repeat it to a rabbit and shoot the rabbit. <laughs> you don't have to worry about anybody ever hearing about it again. Yeah. So now we, we, we understand what happened to some of the Brugman's rabbits. Astrid yeah. going out here for a talk. Yeah. Okay, but, but you understand what I'm saying. David poured his heart out in the Psalms to God without ever fully realizing that thousands of years later we'd be reading. He had no idea. I don't think I don't even know if he would have written some of them songs if he knew we'd be looking back later where it's oh my goodness, slay my enemies, cut their arms off. Oh God, exalt my head above theirs and let their legs wither up. Oh, Thankfully, we're on this side of the cross and we don't pray those prayers no more. At least we shouldn't pray. <laughs> I don't know what some folks were saying probably. <laughs> To God in their heart. But but Moses was faithful because he was full of faith. 
in God. He wasn't perfect, must understand me. And his imperfection kept him from getting in the promised land, but he never turned from God. And even when he sinned, he came back to God. That's a faithful person. When, when you fail, at least fall in the, in the arms of God where you'll find mercy and grace. And most greatest prophet of the Old Testament prophets has the testimony that he's faithful. But verse 7 says, he's my servant. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not going to call you servants anymore, I'm going to call you friends. So we get through redemption, through the cross and the resurrection, then we come and we discover that, that we're more than servants, we're more than friends, we're also joint heirs, we're sons. How faithful are we in the house of God? How faithful are we in the kingdom of God when it comes to our character? How do you respond when people talk ill of you and speak evil? What do you like? Are you one of these people that, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up and then all of a sudden your spine gets strong and you, you're ready to, to hit somebody? Or are you like Moses, able to go to God and say, Lord, look, this is a bit much for me. That's what God wants us to. That's the ideal. I realize because we have the law of sin inside of us, you know, the works of the flesh can manifest in, a, in, a, in various ways, but, but let's never forget that the ideal is still the standard. And the standard is what we should be aiming for. Because it really is possible for you to govern your tongue. James says that. James says your tongue, my tongue, is a world of fire. Incline towards iniquity with your speech. You can you can say things that scorch the earth. And I've seen people say things to people bring them to tears, whether they were used foul language or not. Bring people to a point of crying. Raise your voice and yell. But you know, upraised voice, that's not a sin. Whisper, that's not a sin. I was at being said not. Anger isn't even a sin. It's just the, the manifestation of the type of rage and how it comes out of you. That's where you run into problems with God. So with, with the murmuring and all of that, if people are speaking evil of you on your job or people in your family have things to say about you that's not so good and they say it to your face like Miriam and like Aaron did, you still should try to be like Moses. Just... Keep it to yourself and go to God. Now that you may be thinking, okay, well, Pastor, that's easier said than done. Whether it is or not, it's still God's plan. Yeah, it's still the plan. Jesus is the one who told us, love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Hard to pray for people like that sometimes. It is. If, if a little kid is in school, and, and I've seen this with some. Young teens, they have a, a mom and dad who are somewhat timid, and, uh, a little bit more quiet, really, really pacifist. And then you get a kid who's in school being bullied, and really bullied, physically. Yeah. And they tell mom and dad 15 to 20 times through the years, and mom and dad don't do anything, then you know that kid's going to hate going to school. Yeah. Hate it. Hate going to school. Don't despise the teachers. Not going to have a whole lot of friends. And, 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 and that person, if, if they're in a good church and, and they're hearing the word, then at least they'll be able to know, okay, I serve God, I'm a Christian, so here's what I can do to harness these emotions and walk with God. Otherwise, without God, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Somebody's going to have a shotgun in their hand and end up taking somebody's life. Yeah. That's, that's, that's probably what's going to happen because it happens often. Or it'll go in reverse. Somebody will take their own life because they don't want to deal with what they have to deal with. I'm grateful that Moses could go to God and never allow the complaints of several million people to cause him to fall apart. I mean, we see people fall apart if somebody, if 15 people tweet something against them, or they get nine comments on the Facebook page and say, well, I never really did like you anyhow. Then people, seriously, just about the generation of people that, that are falling apart, but this is the kind of generation of people we've raised outside of Christ. Outside of Christ. 
our attitudes should be different. Tiffany and I were talking about this one time. With, with all the things that we see when we travel overseas with starving Africans, barely clothed Africans, people walking miles to a well to get water and bring it back to their family, and people dealing with wild animals just to exist. You don't have a high suicide rate amongst the people. These folks are out there killing themselves. But if, if someone says something against them, <clears throat> they've got a strong enough character to be able to have. But our folks, not so, not so. Look at verse 8. The Lord said, with him, speaking of Moses, I'll speak mouth to mouth, even apparently. That, that is to say, he will see some aspect of me, not in dark speeches. I'm not going to talk to him in parables and everything, but speak to him directly. Not in a similitude, see again, not in a parable, not in figures of speech, but clear saying. So he'll know how to lead these people. And it says, wherefore... <laughs> Then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? How in the world could you fix your lips to speak evil of Moses when you see how I have used Moses in delivering the people? Yeah. I can tell you what happened. They were a part of a lot of the miracles, and because they saw the supernatural things taking place, they just started taking their relationship with God for granted. We, we do that. It's easy to do. And, and they knew Moses was their brother. You know, with Ken, sometimes you'll be a lot more forthright with Ken than you will with people you're not related to. Same thing in marriage. Husbands and wives can easily become impatient with one another in their speech and the way they act with one another because they know their spouse isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you. But, but when you get to church, you get around the saints. Oh my goodness, so patient. Oh, so good to see you, sister. I, I missed you. How have you been doing? Then get home, your spouse trying to say, "So hold on, I'm watching television now. What's going on? Watching, the, reading the newspaper right now. That kind of a thing." And and with with Moses and his siblings, they knew he's our brother. We can talk directly to him, and they did. And they ended up choking. Familiarity will breed contempt if you don't have the character to deal with growing close to people in your acquaintance. Now, now this, is, this is interesting because Moses was close to his elders. He was close to his family, obviously, and he was close to a lot of these people here in, uh, in the children of Israel. Thousands of them knew him personally, I'm sure. Everybody in this tribe knew. Any brother knew my name. Wouldn't have been hard to get to know some of these folks because your fathers would have known their fathers and so on and so forth. But it's because of these scenarios like this that many Bible colleges and uh, seminaries for a long time trained their pastors not to ever get too close to the people they pastor. Kind of strange to me. How do you shepherd sheep without being around the sheep? But a lot of them have learned that. I I preached in churches where we'll walk out there, there'd be thousands of people out there, and we'll come out in that pastor's office, and he'll keep me in that pastor's office just until the, the last few moments of the praise the last praise and worship song. And, and he'll say, we, we stand back here because when we go out there, I don't want anybody to have to interact with you and kind of throw your mind off of what you've got to say. And it's the same thing with him. He just stays back there and he waits. Then he goes out there, delivers what he believes is the word of God. And after he's done teaching, he may do an altar call, may not do an altar call. But when he's done, he's not standing around talking to me, but he's back out that door off the stage headed to his office. And he's liable to be the first one at the restaurant. And, and the reason they all do that is they have come to believe that if you get too close to your people, then your people may start saying things or they might lose respect for you. But to me, that's foolish. 
it just seems that if you live what you preach, you live what you proclaim, then your people are going to love you more if they spend time with you privately. That's where it should be. And I'm grateful that, that Moses never cut himself off from the people. And, and, and even then, that's why the Lord said, you need 70 folks to help you because he's trying to do everything. Can you imagine him doing like Deborah, sitting up under a tree, listening to every problem one by one that came before him? I mean, several million people, if he would have tried that, he'd have been dead before he ever got to the last person. It's impossible to do that. But yet, it says in verse number nine, because they decided they wanted to speak evil of him, the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. Wait a minute, you can't tell me God can get angry? Look at that again there. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Wait a minute. I mean, every time I listen on television, somebody said, God's not mad at you. He doesn't get angry. Like, really? When was the last time you read the book of Revelation? There's, there's some, some hot displeasure of God that can be manifested. And all three of these people were in covenant with God. Now, here's what I tell people when they talk about the anger of the king. I say, God's not mad at me because I'm in Christ and he's and He's pleased with me. And I'm not intentionally going out here doing anything that, that, I, that I shouldn't be doing to make him mad. But I do know one thing in interacting with the body of Christ. I have to be very careful how I handle you, how I speak to you, because obviously you matter to God. You remember what he said to Saul on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So in the mind of the Lord, his church is his body. And if you're attacking his body, you're attacking God. So that's not going to please God. I know the Lord can be made unhappy because he says in the book of Ephesians, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve. How, how can I grieve the Holy Spirit? Start murmuring. Start complaining. Start complaining about the blessings God has brought into your life. Start complaining about the things that God hasn't brought to your life yet, but you want him to bring them, but he's not moving as fast as you want him to move. Start that kind of murmuring and complaining and see whether or not that's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, he then is going to let you know that he's not the happiest on the inside. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Conviction. He's going to touch your heart and say, no, really, no. Who are you to indict God who's just and righteous? Who are you to indict God when God hadn't done you any wrong? And that's what the Spirit of God is going to do. He'll bring that case right into the middle of your bosom. And, and as, you're, as you're listening to him talk, then by the time he's done, you will be convicted. And believe me, the Holy Spirit never convicts where there is no evidence of guilt. He doesn't play with it. He doesn't play court and all of that. If, if there's something wrong with us that needs to be dealt with, he'll deal with it. If somebody decides, well, look, I, I just believe everything that I have belongs to me, and I'm not, I'm not giving God anything. And God, he knows how to bring conviction regarding how to give to him. God loves a cheerful giver. If you make the determination, well, look, God's got all this stuff predestined, and I just don't see any reason why I ought to pray, and I'm not ever going to pray and talk to God, you'll keep reading them scriptures that said, pray without ceasing, and the Spirit of God keep knocking on that heart saying, you need to obey the book. Obey the book. Yeah. And if he has to, he can get on your case in a dream or a vision if he wants to. Any way he wants. So verse 10, the cloud departed from off the tabernacle and Miriam was left. Well, you have to see that we had a thick cloud like a fog came down where these three were standing in the presence of the Lord. And when that thing finally lifted, because they probably couldn't see one another, when it finally lifted, Miriam, she's got this leprosy on. And, and you know that Aaron was startled by this. <clears throat> now Moses, he wasn't unfamiliar with this. He 
Do remember when the Lord called him at the burning bush and was telling him, look, you go deliver my people. And he was like, well, what, how, do I, how do I know they're going to listen to me? The Lord said, put your hand in your bosom. He did. Pull it out. Pull it out. Hand was left. The Lord said, pull it back in. Did. Brought it back out. It was healthy. So he, he knows what this looks like. But to be leprous all over. And the law of God said that if a person was leprous, that they should be put outside of the camp. This was going to be terrible for a prophet. Yeah. You can't have a ministry with people if you can't connect with people and be around people. And this is what the Lord is, is letting Miriam know. You can be a prophetess, but just because you're a prophetess and you've got a powerful ministry, you don't have a ministry so so important to me that I'm just going to let you speak evil of the man of God. Yeah. Aaron looks, oh my goodness, he, he, he probably was searching himself, trying to figure out why he didn't have some of this on. But notice verse 11. Aaron, then he says, don't lay this sin upon us. Uh, that that acknowledgement lets you know that Aaron knows what they did was a sin. Yeah. We, we have to be very careful about how we talk about uh, people in ministry, male or female. Uh, here's what here's what Paul says in Romans. Who are you to judge another man's servant before God may stand or fall? You, like me, may not like some of the things you see in ministries on radio, television, whatever, but, but I didn't call any of them. I didn't equip any of them. And, and none of them are doing what they're doing asking for my permission. But when God looks out at his body and he sees different people around the world doing things they ought not do, believe me when I tell you he's big enough to handle it. We, we think he isn't sometimes, but, but believe me, he, he really is. I, I know that because even in Corinthians, the scripture says, look, your body is the temple of God, and if whoever defiles that temple, him, God, shall destroy. I didn't write that. He said. And, and Paul talks about how certain people are turned over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh that in the end, they might be saved. This, this physical body needs to be cared for and treated like it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, our mouths should be used to edify. Our conversation should be seasoned with grace. The devil's looking for tongues that he can use to indict believers every day. That's why he's called the accuser of the breath. It says in the, the epistle to Paul to Timothy and even to Titus, don't bring an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. Now, they had two. They had two. But you know what an accusation is? Something that very often is unfounded. Many people's lives have been destroyed because of a lie. And multitudes of people have had their character smeared because of the lie. The newspapers know this is true. They'll print something that they know is not true, and then when they're called on it and the truth comes to them, they'll retract their statement, but they'll put it on page 16, where nobody knows that they retract. But God's not like that. He's not like that at all. God, he, he pays attention. He says every idle word we've got to give an account of before him. So verse 12, let her, let her not, Lord, be as one that's dead. He's talking about the lepers, dead flesh and everything. Of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's wounds. We're talking about someone afflicted. And oh God, no one would be like that. And Moses, despite all that was said to him, I love his intercession. Heal her now, oh God, I'm asking. He didn't say, Lord, heal her tomorrow. Pipe down. That's a man whose heart 
is right with God before he goes to the tabernacle and while he's in the tabernacle. Do you remember what Jesus was able to say on that cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he's saying that with the mallet and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish people around him still clamoring for his death. I want to be like that. That's the kind of character trait I want to be able to have. That when people say the nastiest thing, I can still say, oh, God, heal. Please, God, heal them right now. Heal them right now. And, and you know as well as I do, words hurt. They hurt. They can heal. They, don't, they do hurt. They wound. And sometimes what people don't say certainly can hurt you, but what they do say can be very difficult. Jezebel didn't like what happened to her husband one time, so she sat down and wrote some words on a piece of paper. Then had those had Nabal and his sons brought up on charges and then had the paper read filled with her lies. And after they read the paper, then they had false witnesses that came forward. And then after the false witnesses came forward, the fake court said they're guilty and stoned them to death. They died. Words followed. And, and oftentimes when people say terrible things, they forget, you can't get the words back. And I know it's true because anybody in here who's ever had an argument with their spouse, or had an argument with a neighbor, or argument with an, with an enemy, then you realize that probably somewhere back there, somebody's still got a Rolodex going up here where they can remember what you said and how it hurt. Yeah, words. So, verse 14, here's what the Lord said to Moses If her father, had but spit in her face. Should she not be ashamed seven days? Now what, what in the world does that mean? This is talking about public disgrace, public shame. If you go one book over to Deuteronomy 25, I'll just give you some context for the whole spitting in the face thing. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 25, beginning with verse 5, if you have a family living together, and there are brothers, and one of the brothers is married and dies, and his wife has had no child. Then that wife, the widow, she can't go and marry somebody outside of the family or outside the tribe. She's got to marry one of the brothers. One of the brothers has to marry the sister and raise up a name for his brother's family. That's what, that's what all of this is saying in verse 5 and verse 6. It's the duty of the husband's brother to do that. But if a brother dies, and then the other brother said, absolutely not, I don't have anything to do with my sister-in-law, I'm not marrying her, then she could call for the town elders and they have a meeting, and then they call for the brother, and if the brother says, absolutely, I told her I'm not marrying her, and I'm not having a kid with her, then that widow walks over to the brother, takes his shoe off his foot, and then in the sight of all the town elders, spits in his face. That's what it says right here in verse 9. Spits in his face because he refused to build up his brother's house. So it's a it's a form of shame and disgrace. I don't want to be glad we live on this side of the cross. I'm telling you right now. I've, I've loved all of my sister-in-laws, but not a one of them I would want to marry. Not <laughs> them all. Not a one of them. But, but here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God is saying what she and Aaron, particularly Miriam, she's done is, is so bad that if she'd have just been disgraced, it'd have been a whole lot easier. That's what he's saying here. If her father had but spit in her face, put her outside of the community for seven days, let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that be received again. Wow. Yeah. She had nothing. 
He still was isolated because verse 15 says, And Miriam was shut from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. Moses cried out in verse 13, Lord, heal her now. She was forgiven eventually, but obviously she wasn't healed immediately. Seven days. She's on the outside. Because of the leprosy. Because when a person had leprosy, they had to isolate themselves. Once the leprosy seemed to disappear, they still had to be isolated to make sure it didn't come back. This is just an amazing story. And when I, when I look at this, I say, oh, God, help me to, to be somewhat like this man Moses so that if I hear things, then I can still hide them in my heart and believe that you can still keep me healed in the midst of your presence. That's what that tabernacle is all about. For Miriam and for Aaron, the presence of God in the tabernacle was a place of judgment. For Moses, it was a place to maintain his integrity. Because in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. So if you're wrestling with people today that are in your life that are saying things to intentionally hurt you, or disagree with what you're doing. Spend more time in God's presence. And let God bless you. That, that's the only way you're going to stay healed. Keep your health spiritual. Yeah. Keep your health spiritual. Really deep. But our Savior, he certainly endured all of this. And, and I'm glad. That he came down here and showed us the example of how we can cry out to God in the midst of our deepest pain. Still say, God, like this scene, give him back. How powerful that, that is to know that we have a king like that. So, Father, when you look down here tonight, you may see some bitterness, some wounded hearts. But at the same time, Lord, you, you probably see some people with strong force of character, individuals that are meek and humble. I pray, oh God, that you'd help each one of us to walk with you. Let us not be murmurers, God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, give us revelation when we're moving down that pathway toward complaint. And God, I pray you lift any burden off of any man or woman that's here right now so that we can walk with you. We trust you. We honor you. We love you. And we pray for our enemies. We pray for those that speak evil of us despite what they may say. We know that you, oh God, are calling us to dwell in your presence. Let that be the place of life. You said, thou wilt show me the path of life. Because in your presence, fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Love you and thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <coughs> Amen.